0: Again, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Please turn with me in God's word to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 as we continue in this sermon series through the book of Revelation. And as you're turning the book of Revelation, I wonder what do you think about debates among Christians? Maybe you have witnessed a formal debate that has taken place between two Christian theologians or pastors as they uh, debate a doctrinal disagreement between them. Or maybe you have attended a panel discussion where Christians or church leaders interact with one another over what they believe. Or maybe you've read a book where there are different biblical views or theological perspectives that are compared and contrasted. I personally was watching a debate the last week between a Lutheran and a Baptist discussing infant baptism. And so there are these debates that are out there that, that many of us are familiar with. But I find that in general, believers have one of two reactions to these kinds of debates among Christians for some they're attracted to these debates and they're attracted because they 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 want to know more they want to hear more they they want to hear these different views compared and contrasted and so i understand this that debates can help us in understanding and evaluating these different positions and perspectives then for others, rather than being attracted to debates, frankly, they'd rather avoid debates. Sometimes debates simply attract the wrong kind of crowd and lead to unnecessary controversy and division. So debates can help us, but they can also hurt us by dividing us into different camps or tribes and causing unnecessary conflict and separation between believers in Christ. I say all this because this morning we come to what is the most controversial debate among Christians in the book of Revelation. It is the great millennium debate. But I hope that our time together this morning will bring much more biblical light than it will bring troublesome heat. And So it's with this in mind then that we read together Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Brothers and sisters, before we continue, let us once more come before our Lord's throne in prayer. O Father, we know that in the midst of these debates, and this controversy. That You have given us Your Word to speak to us. And so we pray that even this morning through this difficult passage of Scripture, that we will hear Your voice. That You will be at work through the preaching of Your Word to receive the grace of Christ and empower us to live by the the, the Spirit that You give in the midst of all of the, 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 the challenges and the troubles that we face in this world. So Lord, we pray this morning that Your Word will have a, its full effect in our lives as Your Spirit works powerfully in our hearts and minds this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we are, after all of the weeks and months, to come to this controversy over the millennium. But what does the word millennium mean? well the word millennium itself comes from the latin which simply means a thousand years so when we're speaking of the millennium we're speaking of these thousand years that are revealed to us here in this chapter of the book of revelation revelation chapter 20 and it's here in this chapter that is the only place in scripture where these thousand years are explicitly mentioned as a period of time and so it's through the centuries then, that in this growing debate, three views have developed about these thousand years that are revealed. And for us then to understand each position, I think it'll be helpful for us to briefly consider the, the basic meaning of these words together with their three prefixes. So you have premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism let's 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 quickly think of each one of these pre-millennialism pre means before right so when you preview something you see before or when you prepare for something you get ready before so pre-millennialism means christ returning before the millennium the 1,000 years, to rule over this world. So what premillennialism means. But then what about amillennialism? Well, when you put the letter A at the beginning of a word, it means not. So you have an atheist, which means he's not a theist. He is not a believer in God. So amillennialism literally means no millennium, which is actually not a correct understanding of their position. They do read Revelation 20. They do recognize Revelation 20 speaks of a thousand years. But this label describes those who see this thousand years as a symbolic period of time where Christ rules from heaven all the way from his first coming until his second coming. And so this millennial reign is not a reign of Christ on the earth, but of Christ in heaven. So there's premillennialism and amillennialism, and finally there is postmillennialism, and when you have post at the beginning of the word, it means after. So to postpone is to delay until after something is originally scheduled. For those who are in the sports, the postseason are games that take place after the regular season has ended. So post-millennialism refers to Christ returning after the millennium, which is a time where Christ's rule over this world expands through the church and the progress of the gospel, which then converts sinners and transforms societies. So you have premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and then among them, there are different versions of each of these views. Why why this can lead to so much confusion. And frankly, we're not going to get into all of them this morning. Because my focus today is not to enter into this millennial debate by comparing and contrasting these views. It's not to defend my understanding of the millennium against all of the objections that are raised against it from those who hold to other views. The truth is, entire books have been written that wrestle over these issues, and if you really want, I can recommend some to you later. But my desire in this sermon is to help us receive the encouragement that God intended for us when he reveals this thousand years to the Apostle John. So before we begin looking at these verses, uh, allow me to share a couple of quick thoughts with you about the Millennium Debate. I want to frame this well before we look at these specific verses. First, please do not overestimate this debate. Do not make this debate more than it should be. Because there are some Christians who will suggest that you must hold to a specific millennial view or you're compromising your faith in Christ. And churches will even divide over different positions on the millennium and the end times. Let me give an example from a man that I greatly respect and revere, John MacArthur. John MacArthur, who I greatly appreciate his ministry and have benefited from his preaching, but several years ago he preached a message which he titled, Why Every Self-Respecting Calvinist is a Premillennialist. This language is not helpful. It's unnecessarily divisive. So when we see these churches that start to put in their statements of faith uh, dispensational premillennialism, they're unnecessarily dividing the church and excluding those who disagree with them from leadership and even from membership. See, we should not make millennial differences a test of fellowship in our churches. Or a test of faithfulness to Christ, because we agree on far more than we disagree on, and our shared beliefs are what's most important for us to uphold and defend. So, whatever your millennial view, think of all we have in common, all the the the, the beliefs we share—that Christ is ruling from heaven in this age, that He will return to judge the living and the dead, and that He will resurrect the church to enjoy eternal life in God's presence, free from all sin and corruption and death in this fallen world. All believers in Christ believe these things. So let us be humble in our millennial convictions and gracious to those whom we disagree with, because we can love and serve Christ together while holding the various views of the millennium. We should not overestimate this debate. But second, listen, please do not underestimate this debate. I find that for many Christians, because so many have disagreed on the meaning of this millennium through church history, that they simply dismiss the debate as meaningless. So they'll sometimes say something like, I'm a pan-millennialist, it'll all pan out in the end. That sounds kind of cute. But this approach to the millennium is also unhelpful. After all, do you remember how Revelation began? Chapter 1, verse 3. We read, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. Well, listen, the words of this prophecy include the thousand years of Revelation 20, which we are blessed when we hear and keep. The truths of. So Revelation 20 matters. There's a reason God includes this chapter in the Bible. See, the truth is our understanding of the millennium will impact how we live in this world, and it will influence what we expect will happen through this age. So the millennium is involved in answering a, a host of questions that we wrestle with as Christians. For example, what is the relationship between the church and the world in this age? How does our hope in Christ influence the way that we live as believers in this world and the focus of our ministries as a church? Are we waiting to reign with Christ on earth when he returns? Are we reigning with Christ now in heaven? Or do we reign with Christ on the earth through the advancement of the gospel and its success in this world? See, it's questions like these that show us the millennium debate matters. And I understand that this can be a difficult study and there's no need for us to rush in adopting a specific view. It takes time to study these things, to work through these questions, and to come to recognize what Revelation chapter 20 means. But... It's also important for us to recognize that God revealed the millennium to us for our good. This is why He promises to bless us as we hear and keep its truths in our lives. So it's with all of this in mind that I'm just going to put my cards on the table. Right? You want to know what my millennium position is? Well, it's historic premillennialism or covenantal. Pre millennialism. I believe Christ comes back and returns before the millennium. And I realize that this is in disagreement with a large majority of Reformed theologians and pastors today, since they hold to other millennial positions. Yet I remain unconvinced by their arguments. Still, I hope that whatever view you hold, that our time together will be beneficial to your soul. And so with all of this, it's an extended introduction to these verses. What is God revealing to us through the millennium? If I'm to summarize it, in one statement it would be this that while we currently suffer tribulation in this world, the time is coming when we will reign with Christ over this world. Yes, we currently suffer tribulation in this world, but the time is coming when we will rule over this world with Christ. So let us rejoice in this promised blessing, because we will reign with Christ. On the earth. And God reveals then Christ's millennial reign here through two truths of these verses. In verses 1 to 3, we read of the removal of Satan's deception in the millennium, the removal of Satan's deception. But then in verses 4 to 6, we read of the resurrection. Christ Christ's church in the millennium, the resurrection of Christ's church. So the removal of Satan's deception, the resurrection of Christ's church. Let's begin by looking more closely at verses 1 to 3 where we read of the removal of Satan's deception. Of course, the Apostle John has been recording these symbolic visions of prophecy from God in this book to encourage Christ's churches as we struggle and suffer in this present evil age, and while we are persecuted and we go through tribulation in this age, the time will come when this will intensify and Satan then releases the antichrist and the false prophet to unite the the world's governmental and economic and religious powers to make war against Christ's church. And this coming tribulation will be terrible, leading to. Opposition and oppression and even death. As many followers of Christ are killed for their faith and martyrdom. Yet this time is also limited. Since Christ will return as our victorious king. And he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet alive into the flames of hell and he conquers the armies of the nations who united together with them in their rebellion against God and sin. So as chapter 19 ends, with the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown alive into the lake of fire, cast into the lake of fire, the question remains. Well, now that they have been cast alive into this lake of fire, what will happen to Satan? And in verse 1, John sees an angel coming down from heaven who has the key to the bottomless pit. Now, this key has been important throughout the book of Revelation. You go all the way back Revelation chapter 1 and the opening vision of Christ in his glory. And Christ there says in verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So these are Christ's keys. Which then in chapter 9, we read, that when the fifth trumpet sounds, an angel fell from heaven as a star, and is given the key to the bottomless pit. And it's with this key he opens the pit and releases these demonic scorpion locusts to then bring judgment on this world. Well, now an angel again appears with this key. He's likely the same angel that came back in chapter 9. But now he brings this key to lock back up what he had previously unlocked. But not only does he come with the key to the bottomless pit, he comes down from heaven with a great chain in his hand. And it's with this great chain, then, that he will restrain our enemy, Satan. See, Satan is shown here as being shackled with this chain, like a prisoner is chained to the wall of his cell. And so Satan is chained to the cell of his bottomless pit and a key is then used to lock Satan inside as his prison so that he cannot escape. That's the imagery that's used here. The the restriction of Satan's authority and power in this world, it's removed. So it's with the He in great chain, and that the angel lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. This is how Satan was identified back in Revelation chapter twelve. You see how Revelation is bringing all of these threads together here as we come to the end. Well, back in Revelation chapter twelve, there were two signs that appeared in heaven. The first sign was a pregnant woman who represented God's people and was in labor with her child, and this child is Jesus Christ. But then there's a second sign that appears in heaven. It was a dragon seeking to devour this child so that God's plan of redemption would fail and Christ would not rule over the nations. But Satan was defeated because the child was born. The Son of God was born as a man. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead, and he ascended to heaven where he was caught up to God in his throne. So it's with the birth of Christ that John in Revelation 12 opens the window of heaven to show us that this war breaks out in heaven between the archangel Michael and his angels and the dragon Satan and his angels see how Satan and his angels are defeated and lose this war through the cross of Christ. Which is why we read in chapter 12 verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So does that sound familiar to you? It should, since it's the same language that we find here in Revelation chapter 20. So let's compare what happens in chapters 12 and 13 with what we read here in chapter 20. Back in chapter 12, Christ triumphs over Satan through his resurrection and ascension to heaven, where Satan is then cast out of heaven to the earth, where he deceives the whole world. And then in chapter 13, once he releases these two beasts into the world, the Antichrist and the false prophet, we read of the false prophet in chapter 13, verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So do you see how satanic deception is at work in this world through Satan and the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet? But now in chapter 20, what do we see? Satan is bound for a thousand years, which is like the other numbers in Revelation, likely a symbolic number, simply referring to a long and perfect period of time. But it's during this time that Satan is cast into the bottomless pit where he is shut up with a seal to keep him from escaping. And why does this take place? So that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. So don't miss the contrasts between what happens in 12 and 13 and what happens in 20. Because with Christ's first coming, Satan is cast out from heaven to earth. But with Christ's second coming, Satan is cast out of earth to the bottomless pit. And when Satan is cast to the earth with Christ's first coming, he deceives the nations, especially through the Antichrist and false prophet. But when Satan is cast into the bottomless pit through Christ's second coming, he no longer deceives the nations because he is bound by chains. He's shut up in the pit and sealed to stay there for a thousand years. So Satan's war in this world against Christ Church may have continued and intensified between Christ's first and second comings, but now that Christ has returned to rule over his kingdom on the earth, Satan's temporary authority in this world has been stripped away. His power has been taken away, and he is imprisoned during Christ's millennial reign until he is released for a little while. Now, it is common for those with other millennial views to say that there's a recapitulation that takes place between Christ's return in verse 19 and his millennial reign in verse 20. But I realize that there are some here that don't aren't familiar with the term recapitulation and what that means. So think of it this way. In these visions to John, there's a rewind button that's pressed at the beginning of chapter 20. So after Christ returns, we rewind back to Christ's first coming, where Satan is bound through Christ's death and resurrection, and that begins the millennium, which finishes when Christ returns. Here's another way to think of it. About ten years ago, there was a movie that came out called Vantage Point, which centers around the attempted assassination of the U.S. president. And this story is told in the movie through watching what different people see in the same amount of time as the president is shot. So it's at the end of each vantage point in the movie that a clock then rewinds to show you the same, over the same period of time, a different perspective. So these points of view through the movie build on each other until you finally understand trying to kill the precedent well it's this recapitulation approach then that some say happens here in revelation chapter 20 christ returns in victory at the end of chapter 19 and then we rewind back to the same period of time that was portrayed in chapter 12 and following so chapter 20 then shows us a different perspective between Christ's first and second coming, which is now seen as a symbolic thousand-year reign of Christ from heaven, from his ascension to heaven, to his return from heaven. But rather than Revelation giving us several different perspectives through its chapters, I see its story unfolding more like an epic war movie, which builds towards a climax, where the hero overcomes all obstacles and stands victorious over his enemies. Yes, in the midst of this story being revealed, there are flashbacks to the past, as well as previews of the future as the story progresses. And yes, Christ is certainly sovereign over all that happens in this world, as he reigns from heaven through this age. But we should also recognize that these visions present us with the advancement of God's plan of redemption through history, revealing Christ conquering the kingdoms of this world and the and his coming to fully and finally establish his kingdom on the earth as the climax of world history. This is why the seeing a break then between chapters 19 and 20 seems artificial to me, especially when we consider the contrast in Revelation between what John records between Christ's first and second coming earlier And what he here records will happen when Christ returns to rule for a thousand years. So, brothers and sisters, as we consider the arrival of Christ in his millennial kingdom when he will rule over the earth, imagine life during these thousand years. Imagine what it'll be like. Imagine living in a world where Satan is no longer prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. Imagine a world where Satan is no longer tempting you to sin or targeting you to suffer through tribulation. Imagine living in a world where Satan is no longer the god of this age or the prince of the power of the air. Because this world is coming when Christ returns. What Revelation reveals to us and shows us is the removal of Satan's deception. But then secondly, in verses 4-6, to six, we come to the resurrection of Christ's church. The resurrection of Christ's church. You see, Christ will not reign over his kingdom alone. Which is why John sees thrones with those sitting on them whom Christ has committed to judge the world. This is why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is also why the Apostle Paul rhetorically asks The Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So look at how John describes those sitting on these thrones. They are martyrs who have persevered in their faith through the Great Tribulation. How? Well, they've been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, and they had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So through all of the hardships and persecution and even death that they suffered, they remained faithful to Christ. And these martyrs then represent all Christians who have been saved by God's grace and who have remained faithful in our struggles and suffering in this sinful world. Do you then see how our path to glory is through suffering in this world? Back when Christ opened the fifth seal of the scroll, he received from God the Father the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held then cried out for justice. And their prayers then were brought before God's heavenly throne, which were answered through God's plagues of judgment in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And now that these prayers have been answered, and Christ has returned, those who have died for their faith in Christ are now resurrected to life so that they will reign with Christ for a thousand years as those who are entrusted by him to then continue carrying out this justice on the world during this final period of world history. Now, those who hold to an amillennial view often interpret this coming to life in verse 4 as a spiritual regeneration rather than a physical resurrection. So those who come to life in Christ are those whose souls come alive when they believe in Jesus. But I simply don't think this works. The same word coming to life is again used in verse 5, and certainly there means to be bodily raised from the dead. See, this is the consistent meaning of this Greek word throughout Revelation and really the rest of the New Testament, which is why this first resurrection is referring to Christ's church physically rising from the dead. Yet we go on to read that not all of those who have died in this age will be resurrected when Christ returns to reign over his millennial kingdom. But the rest of the dead will not live again until the thousand years are over and finished. And they are then raised to stand before God's throne in judgment for their sins. You see then, for those who are believers in Christ, what a glorious future we have to look forward to in Christ. That we will be blessed and holy when we are part of this first resurrection. See, since there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, the second death has no power over us. We may die the first death and lay buried in the ground until Christ returns, even as those who are martyrs dying for our faith in Christ. But the second death of God's judgment in the eternal lake of fire is not our destiny. Praise God. when we are resurrected to, Christ, to, to life we shall be priests of God and of Christ and we shall reign with him for the thousand years and here I think it's helpful to go all the way back to creation itself and consider how this whole idea of priesthood and kingship develops because do you remember what happened when God originally created us in his image well, Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 there we read Then God blessed them and God said to them Be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it Have dominion over the fish of the sea Over the birds of the air And over every living thing that moves on the earth But when Adam rebelled against God in sin All of his descendants fell with him into sin So why we can no longer have dominion over this world We are cursed With the punishment of death. Adam failed as God's priest, whom God had called to guard the garden of his presence in Eden and to work to gardenize the rest of this world. Not only did Adam fail as God's priest, Adam also failed as God's king. He was called to reign over the earth as God's representative with God's authority. Is why, as Adam's descendants, we can no longer fill this dominion mandate by exercising this priestly ministry or this kingly rule. Because our sin has corrupted us as God's image bears, and so we can no longer carry out our created purpose in this world. That's why we are frustrated in our work and ultimately die and return to the dust of the ground. But listen, where the first Adam failed. The second Adam succeeded because he is the true image of God who is our faithful high priest and our sovereign king. So it's in the millennial reign of Christ that he fulfills the dominion mandate in this world by establishing the kingdom of God over all of creation. With his spiritual descendants then exercising our priestly ministry and our kingly rule with him why the korean theologian soon luke chung writes the first adam's priest kingly activity which was thwarted by the fall will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom therefore the millennial kingdom will be a restoration and fulfillment of the edenic kingdom on the earth and we too will be priests and kings in christ's millennial kingdom as we reign with him for the thousand years. Which means that in Christ, we will finally be able to carry out our created purpose in this world. That we will finally experience how we were created to live on this earth. This is why the angels of heaven fell down before Christ the Lamb in chapter 5, and they sang a new song saying, to Christ you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And what the angels praised God for back in chapter 5, the church now exercises in chapter 20. Because we will reign on the earth with Christ in resurrection glory for a thousand years. So I ask each of you this morning, will you receive this promised blessing when Christ returns? Will you receive this promised blessing of reigning on the earth with Christ? And this glorious future belongs to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, set free from our slavery to sin, who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, and who will be raised from the dead like Christ to reign with Him over the world in His millennial kingdom. But unbelievers will not share in this future. They will remain dead in the ground until Christ's millennial reign is complete, and they will come back to life in order to eternally suffer the second death of God's wrath and torment in hell. What love is brought then before us in Christ? That rather than suffer the second death by believing in Him, we will belong to the first resurrection. So come to Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Christ who died on the cross to take the second death for you as sinners. Come to Christ, who is now resurrected and reigning in heaven, and will one day return to earth to resurrect us, that we will reign with him over his millennial kingdom from your sins and repentance. Turn to Christ with faith. Believe in Christ. And reign with Him when He returns. You see then that while we currently suffer tribulation in this world, the time is coming when we will reign with Christ over this world. As Christ returns in victory, So we too will reign in this world as victorious in Him. Let us rejoice in this promised millennial blessing that we will reign with Christ on the earth. May we live with this hope always in our minds which will lead us to worship Christ with our hearts. Yes, we will face the hatred and hostility of this world as Christians. Yes, we may be powerless and come under persecution by the world for our faith in Christ. Yes, we may even be beheaded by following Christ. But listen, when Christ returns, we will rise to reign with Him on the earth, this is where our eternal hope is found. Christ, let us then live looking forward to reigning with Him on the earth. Let's pray. And Father. Yes, that You cut through all of the controversy and the debates that take place over these verses. Simply show us the glories that You promise us in Christ reigning with Him over this world. Father, may this then be the very hope which drives us to live faithfully in overcoming this world as we persevere in faith, the faith of trusting in Christ. Father, may this future then be what we look forward to so that we have a proper perspective on what it means to live In this world. So we pray that through this revelation of Christ, you will rejoice in his return. You will rise to reign with him. Father, we pray that all these things in the name of our Savior and King.